0: My name is Eve Rittenberg, and I am a primary care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. I wrote this essay about treating a patient who is a survivor of abuse using a healthcare approach that acknowledges her past trauma. Her past is past, she said to me. Nothing I can do will make it better, and nothing I can do will make it worse. When I spoke to Angela, not her real name, I could hear her pride in being able to focus on her current circumstances without being trapped in vigilance and shame. I had met Angela three years previously when she came to see me, her new primary care physician, to follow up after a hospitalization for diabetic ketoacidosis and sexual assault. She had been nervous during that visit, moving restlessly, her speech speeding up and slowing down looking around, shifting in her seat. She was a 35-year-old African-American woman with a complicated medical history that included type 1 diabetes, nerve damage, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, migraines, asthma, and recurrent shoulder dislocations. She was the sole caregiver for her two children and an elderly family member. At that first visit, I felt overwhelmed by the extent of Angela's challenges. On our standard depression screen, she scored 21 out of a possible 24 with passive thoughts of suicide. She reported blood sugars that swung up and down and had a disturbingly high fasting sugar that morning. Her nerve damage caused her pain, and her recently dislocated shoulder was aching. She had an itchy rash over much of her body, and she was terrified that her former partner was going to kill her. Red flags in her electronic health record glared at me about her overdue flu shot, diabetic eye exam, and screening lab tests. During the recent hospitalization, Angela had disclosed that her partner had been physically, sexually, and psychologically abusive to her for several years. Over the past year, his threats and physical violence had intensified with attacks that included strangulation and sexual assault. As these dangers mounted, Angela's physical health had deteriorated. My review of her chart revealed that she had visited our emergency department seven times in the past year with low blood sugars, high blood sugars, and injuries from physical assaults. Why had Angela not been able to keep her sugars in control? Why did she end up in the hospital so often? She had insulin. She lived in a city with a surfeit of physicians and specialists, as well as top-notch care and she was knowledgeable about the mechanics of treating her illness and about the potential complications of diabetes. Her experiences resonated with the stories I have heard from many of my patients in which trauma, violence, and abuse affect their health and their ability to engage in health care. I came to see Angela's traumatic experiences as key to understanding her medical challenges and her difficulties in taking care of her health. As I have struggled to figure out how I could help Angela I've been guided by what the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has defined as the basic principles of trauma informed care safety, trustworthiness and transparency, peer support, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment, voice and choice, and acknowledgement of cultural, historical, and gender issues. I thought that Angela's anxiety and hypervigilance as she sat across from me that day in the exam room. Her eyes scanning me, alert for a potential threat, might reflect a fight or flight stress response. I considered what I might do to help her feel safe during her medical visits. A physical exam can be stressful for anyone who has experienced trauma. Did lying on the exam table in a thin gown trigger flashbacks for her? So when I listened to Angela's heart or examined her shoulder or her feet, I explained what I was going to do before I did it, and I asked permission along the way. I paid attention to her emotional state, and when she became upset, I tried to help contain her distress so that it did not become overwhelming. I addressed the concerns that I thought were most acute, keeping her blood sugars in a safe range, as well as her own priorities, finding safe housing, and controlling her pain. Sometimes the stories would come spilling out, how her former partner had stomped on her shoulder how he had threatened to bury her in the backyard, and how he continued to call her daily after she left him. Instead of pressing for details, I shifted our conversations towards how Angela was experiencing the effects of the trauma on her health, how she could manage those symptoms, and what she might identify as her sources of strength and comfort. I named those strengths, such as her fierce devotion to her family and her determination to make a good life for them, As she pulled out her phone to show me photos of her children, and at later visits, she showed me photos of herself fixing up her new home. One day, Angela shared with me that at times she had skipped her insulin to get sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, where she could seek refuge from the abuse. What had seemed incomprehensible to me, why she kept coming back to the hospital with skyrocketing sugars, turned out to be a strategy for survival. Understanding the underlying cause of her multiple visits was fundamental to being able to treat her, yet this cause would have remained invisible if Angela had not felt safe and comfortable enough with me to disclose these details of her life. I'm grateful that I was not alone in helping Angela negotiate her healthcare experience. While Angela was in the hospital before our first visit, she met with my colleague Annie Lewis O'Connor the founder of the CARE Clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital, a clinic designed to care for victims of violence. Later, Angela connected with a therapist with whom she developed coping strategies and explored in more depth the details of her history, including significant childhood trauma. Together, we formed a CARE team, along with a domestic violence advocate, a lawyer, and multiple specialists. To do this, we asked Angela for permission to communicate with each other. With emails and sometimes group phone calls, we minimized Angela's need to retell her story, and we were able to ensure that she got the right care from the right clinician at the right time. I also relied on members of the team when I felt challenged or ineffective. In turn, this lessened the toll it took on each of us to bear witness to Angela's suffering. In the summer of 2017, Angela missed three appointments in a row with her diabetes specialist. Sometimes we label this pattern as non-compliance, and patients may even be fired from a practice when they miss multiple appointments. I wondered why she would miss these visits without calling to cancel or reschedule, and I worried that she would end up with complications of diabetes, either acute hospitalization or gradual blindness and amputation or early heart disease. We pulled together our care team and invited Angela to join us in a phone call to figure out a plan to improve her diabetes care. She told us that she didn't feel comfortable sharing certain experiences with her diabetes specialists. Those experiences were deeply personal. Sometimes she would induce vomiting to calm her anxiety. Sometimes she didn't think she deserved to be healthy. And sometimes she panicked when her sugars were low and over-treated herself with sugar, juice, candy, and soda. She welcomed our offer to connect her with a new endocrinologist with whom she might feel more comfortable. Angela's story, of course, is far from over. She has faced ongoing challenges related to the legal system, housing, diabetic complications, and her caregiving responsibilities. But despite these challenges, she has persevered. She has had fewer emergency department visits and hospitalizations, More and more, she is achieving times when truly her past is past. Understanding a patient's trauma history can illuminate why their medical conditions remain refractory to supposedly effective medical therapy and provide an avenue towards health and well-being that otherwise would not be possible. Ample research has shown that trauma is pervasive among both patients and providers and has significant health and mental health effects. Moreover, by the potentially invasive nature of clinical medicine, healthcare services themselves can be re traumatizing. As a result, trauma survivors may have difficulty engaging successfully in healthcare. Across several large population based studies, almost two thirds of people have reported a history of one or more adverse childhood experiences ACEs. These traditional ACEs include abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. When community-level traumas, such as witnessing violence, are considered as well, the prevalence of traumatic exposures is even higher, as the Philadelphia Urban Ace Study found. Moreover, trauma tends to be intersectional, so some people have adverse experiences on individual, interpersonal, and community levels at the same time, as Angela did. The groundbreaking ACEs study was conducted by Vincent Fullity and colleagues at Kaiser Permanente and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the late 1990s. It and many subsequent national surveys have shown a dose-response relationship between ACEs and health consequences in adult life, including cardiovascular disease, depression, obesity, and autoimmune diseases. People with the highest number of ACEs have a 12-fold increase in ever-attempting suicide, according to an article by Felitti and colleagues, and a 20-year decrease in life expectancy, according to a 2009 study by David W. Brown and colleagues. Intimate partner violence also is associated with an increased prevalence of multiple conditions, including chronic pain, as well as increased healthcare use. Trauma-informed care acknowledges that caregivers may experience vicarious traumatization from repeatedly hearing the stories of patient suffering, which may contribute to the increasing problem of physician burnout. A system that provides adequate support to physicians for patient care, as well as opportunities for clinician self-reflection and peer support, is necessary to decrease vicarious traumatization and promote resilience and a sense of reward from the work. Acknowledging the impact of trauma, violence, and abuse on Angela's health helped me understand her current symptoms. Only when we began to address that trauma were we able to shift the way that she took care of her health. The first step was trauma inquiry. Trauma inquiry should provide a safe environment in which a patient can share as much or as little of their story as they want, while also minimizing the need to retell their story. Inquiry should include education about trauma and its effect on health and well-being and should seek to identify patients' strength and resiliency. Edward Mocktinger and colleagues suggest four options for inquiry about trauma history. First, assume a history of trauma without asking. This allows health professionals to offer both education about the prevalence and impact of trauma and resources to patients, whether or not they disclose trauma. Second, Screen for the impacts of past trauma instead of screening for the trauma itself. Third, inquire about past trauma using open ended questions. Finally, use a structured tool to explore past traumatic experiences. The various available tools include ACEs questionnaires. Each of these approaches, offered in a trauma informed care framework, has the goal of mitigating the effects of trauma on the health and well being of survivors. In some ways, Angela and her care team were fortunate. I know that specialized programs such as the care clinic do not exist everywhere. However, a team-based approach can be used in many medical settings and a similar sort of patient-centered communication can be achieved. The team might include physicians, nurses, domestic violence advocates, social workers, care managers, community health workers, therapists, psychiatrists, and others. At a higher level, there are several ways in which policymakers could promote trauma-informed health care. First, medical, nursing, and social work schools should incorporate trauma-informed care into their curriculum for all students. Several medical schools, such as Harvard Medical School, are developing curricula to teach trauma-informed care communication and physical exam skills. Second, Hospitals and other healthcare institutions should develop trauma-informed care policies and procedures and train providers in them. For example, Brigham and Women's Hospital is developing trauma-informed care guidelines for procedures, such as the placement of urinary catheters. Systems for clinician support, including peer support, self-reflection, and supervision for difficult cases also will be needed. Resources should be directed at coordinating care across specialties and disciplines for survivors of trauma, violence, and abuse who have cross-cutting care needs. Throughout healthcare, we ought to engage patients as partners in their own care, for example, through shared decision-making and open charts. Third, research is needed into the impact of trauma-informed care on health outcomes and costs. It seems intuitive that interventions that decrease barriers to care, foster relationships between patients and caregivers, and address the root causes of symptoms will improve health outcomes and decrease costs. However, large-scale assessments are needed if trauma-informed care is to become adopted as a standard of care in medicine. Finally, as the theory and practice of trauma-informed care evolve, it is crucial to think about health equity and the ways in which individual, interpersonal, and structural traumas affect individuals and communities. Incorporating an inclusive and diverse set of voices into policy and research is fundamental to the development of effective trauma-informed care. I saw Angela very recently. Her life has been rocky of late. Despite her move to a domestic violence shelter in another town, her former partner continues to taunt and threaten her. She faces upcoming court dates to decide on custody for her son, and she has been hospitalized again. She told me that she felt like an old woman, that after three years, she still felt her body aching where she had been beaten and in some places where she hadn't been. Yet, she had made it to three medical appointments in the week when she spoke to me. Despite the physical distance and emotional strain involved in getting to them, she had started tracking her blood sugars again, and she spoke with a smile of singing in her church choir i pointed out some of these accomplishments as I took a few deep breaths myself. I thought about how the trauma-informed shift in my thinking, away from questioning what's wrong with you, towards asking how has what happened to you affected you, has offered insights and a way to help Angela build her sense of self-worth and thus her ability to take care of her health, despite the almost unimaginable burden of physical and emotional violence that she has withstood I am grateful to be able to share that journey with her.